Hi there! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. This week, I am introducing you to my friend, writer Jonathan Lister. We chat about our various writing processes, outlining versus pantsing, Jonathan's palindrome project, research and description, all while sharing quite a few laughs. It's geared to not only writers, but to readers and lovers of story. Jonathan will also read to us excerpts from his two published novels. There is a bit of weird electronic clicking here and there, which I tried to get rid of and was marginally successful. It does kind of disappear after a while, so just so you know, I'm aware of it. Now, this is my first time with this sort of thing, and editing has been a fun and interesting challenge, which you may interpret as a bit of a slog. I hope you enjoy, friends. Hello. Oh, there you are. <laughs> you can't hear me. Oh. Can you hear me? There you are. <clears throat> hey. Excuse me. Hello. Hi. <laughs> After I edit it, how about I play it for you or I'll send it to you for your approval? I'm good with that, but I trust you. Wow. <laughs> I know. What have I done? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I should start to sound official by saying that this episode of Totally Fantastic Title, we are having a chat. Well, I am. Who's we? Hi. <laughs> I'm having a chat with one of my best pals and writing partner, Jonathan Lister, who is... Hello. Hello. He's coming at you from Vancouver Island, beautiful Vancouver Island, yes. and um, writer, amazing science fiction, fantasy, whatever, horror kind of writer, whatever he comes up with. And uh, I tend to f I tend to find out what I write by other people telling me what I write. <laughs> like um, I wrote a crime story and didn't know it until someone said, you know, this is a crime story. <laughs> and then I gave my wife a horror story and discovered after I gave her a horror story that I'd accidentally given her a horror story. And you didn't hear the end of it for ages. No, no. I said, never give me a horror story again without warning me first. <laughs> Oh, that was a horror story. Oh. <laughs> I wrote a fantasy story that became a crime story, and I wrote another fantasy story that's now published in a romance magazine. So that was unexpected. <laughs> um, so finishing up introductions, you are the author of Oblivion's Wake, which yes. is a, a psychological thriller, if I may, mm -hmm. um, available. I like to think of it that. Yeah available on Amazon, and uh, Judgment Days, D-A-Z-E, which is book one of a trilogy, which, how would you describe that? Um, not so much a trilogy. Um, oh. it, it's, it's more of, it's ultimately going to be an ongoing series. I did not I mean, considering that. I've got potentially hundreds of potential main characters. Each, <laughs> each book is about a different character, really. Uh, there are walk-on characters from other books, but each one is going to be about a, one or two individual characters who may or may not show up in other books. Right. Now, it started as, I think it was like a short story that you started with this concept of the messiahs and so forth, or, or how did it come to be? 
I had the idea years and years and years and years ago, decades ago, actually, but didn't really know what I was going to do with it. It was just kind of a quirky, funny idea um, about, you know, what if the second coming comes about, but there's a kind of clerical error and suddenly instead of one Messiah, there's, you know, dozens. And so... <laughs> to be exact, I believe. Well, now we're giving away secrets from the oh. book. <laughs> we will edit okay. that out. That's okay. <laughs> We'll just, yeah, just beep over it. <laughs> People will really wonder, is this a family show? Hmm. My podcast is listed as explicit, so it's Then not... they're going to think it's really bad if you had to beep it. <laughs> like, oh my God, what did she say? So that was where the, the, the germ of the idea was, so I really didn't know what to do with it until... One year, the three-day novel contest was coming along, and I thought, oh, this would be a time to explore this, because as, as you know, with the three-day novel contest, it really helps to have an idea that is, that is intended to go completely off the rails at some point. Yes. Because after you've had no sleep getting into the second day, you don't have any choice about the story going off the rails. So you might as well come up with something that is just going to, you know, where that's, a, where that's a feature of the process, not a bug. And so I wrote this story that came out to about 80 pages, which I called at the time the Armageddon Jape, and didn't win, obviously, or, you know, fame and fortune would be mine. <laughs> uh, but I still didn't feel like I'd done everything I could with the idea, because I thought the idea was too priceless. Right. So some years later i ended up expanding it and there are elements of that original story in judgment days okay. but it went way beyond what that covered you and i collaborated i totally forgot about that actually how we collaborated on the <laughs> three-day novel contest where you were living in powell river mm -hmm. and i was living i think i was living in poco at the time Mm -hmm. And anyway, but we communicated via Skype constantly. Yep. And you yep. were writing one character's point of view. And, and though, for those who are really far afield, Poco is Port Coquitlam, yeah, British okay. Columbia. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so both in British Columbia, but on entirely different land masses. Exactly. Oh, no, Paul River's on the Sunshine Coast. So you're actually connected. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is on the coast. It just doesn't feel that, because you, that way because you've got to take two ferries to get yes. to it having to get in touch with each other and go, okay, my character's entered the room where I think your character is. So what have you written already? What <laughs> How do we describe what's going on? I should, we should look at that. We should pull that out and see if there's anything salvageable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do recall uh, Elvis was a demon in it. I just remember we were trying to make use of as many as possible of the evil overlord you know the thing yes <laughs> things that you should never do if you're going to become an evil overlord <laughs> don't have heating ducts that are large enough for your enemies to crawl through <laughs> if you're facing down your enemy at their death don't take a pause and and fill them in on your backstory <laughs> Just or what your, great, what your great plan for world domination is just before you drop them into the pit of lava because invariably something's going to go. That's when you're never... And if you've got, you 
you've got, you know, a pet, like if you've got a pet dragon, treat it really well, feed it well, treat it with love and kindness, <laughs> kindness, so that if it gets free, it doesn't immediately turn around and eat you. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know how successful we were at bringing in <laughs> those uh, concepts, but that was, that, was the, that was the plan. So we had lots of yeah. options. Yeah. Anyway, that, that was hilarious. And I remember being quite giddy by the third day. And, and my family kept bringing me trays full of food and telling me to shower. <laughs> For the love of God, have a shower. <laughs> oh, yes, that was awesome. So Oblivion's Wake and Judgment Days are available on Amazon. Uh, yeah. I, I feel like I'm doing a whole big promotional thing right now. I'm okay um, with that. <laughs> and so but you're also in the editing phase of the sequel to judgment days and yes. even though i've read it and gave it a solid critique the title of it has eluded me at this moment the frog of war oh god yes <laughs> the frog of war and yes i remember at the start of it thinking i really hope a frog enters into this at some point because it took a while in the plot for the frog to turn up but there is indeed a frog yeah, he's, she, it, is a god from ancient Samaria. Of course. That's where all the best gods come from, I'm told. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyways. It was, a, it, was, it was a god of, of as, as the character says at one point, that it wasn't so much a god of a city-state, it was more of a suburb state. You know, a, a bedroom community state. <laughs> I'm just going to pause the chat here so Jonathan can read a bit from Judgment Days to tantalize you a wee bit. A bit of background. Seth Brown is the son of God, one of them, thanks to a celestial screw-up. Now someone has begun to murder his half-brothers, actions which threaten to launch Armageddon. So Seth is on the case. As a bookstore clerk, he is somewhat lacking in the action hero department, but he can turn water into a great cup of coffee and resurrect his dead cat. The forces of darkness don't stand a chance. <laughs> Take it away, Jonathan. Judgment Days, book one in the Armageddon Boys series. Part one, the Book of Seth. I grew a tail at the east end of the airport parking lot. An eggshell blue Mustang wagged three cars back, all the way to the Rutherford Freeway. I wasn't about to lead the bastards to my brother, so I cut across four lanes of blasting horns and waving middle fingers to an off-ramp. The Mustang overshot. My rental's GPS led me to the industrial park where Sharky kept his lair. Fat little sharky waddled me down endless aisles of weaponry. I tooled up. Eight U.S. Marine grenades, just because. Two Kimber 9mm pistols. Extended magazines gave them nine shots each. A vintage World War II Sten gun, also 9mm to share ammunition. I gave the Sten a worried look. Sharky insisted I could count on it, despite its reputation. If he vouched for it, that worked for me. In his business, selling shoddy hardware meant the friends of the poor bastard who bought it might show up and make things unpleasant. Next stop, Tim's Diner. 
I parked a block down and dropped a Kimber in my jacket's inner pocket and headed in for a family get-together. As I pushed the creaking door open, I came face to face with a tall guy in a suit, little round glasses on the end of his nose. He gave a condescending smile as I stepped to the side. I recommend the breakfast special, eggs over easy with toast, he brushed past. I looked around. Nathan rustled the newspaper while he ate, looking just like his online profile, two studs in his left earlobe and a cynical face. He picked a table next to the windows, convenient for whoever had shot or blown up six of our half-brothers. His eyes looked Asian. Maybe his mother was Chinese. The shape of his cheekbones matched the rest of us. He had the usual skinny, wiry build, the kind of frame that makes it easy to nail us to a post and lift us up. I thumped the table. He bounced like a rubber ball. Back there, I pointed toward a table near the sign for the restrooms. Nathan stared up, uncomprehending. Seth, I said. You really came all this way? He rustled his newspaper again. How have you been? Not dead. Planning to stay that way. His lip curled. Where do you get the tough guy dialogue? I strode to the back and dropped into a seat at the empty table. He looked around, slowly folding his newspaper. A man came to my table in greasy spoon formal wear, grimy white apron, white cap. Menu? Sure, I said and water in a coffee cup. He gave me a look, but brought both as Nathan slid into the seat opposite me. I waited for Tim to leave, then laid my hand over the cup. The shift felt like a spark in my fingertips. Steam rose between my fingers, carrying the aroma of fresh coffee. Nathan's mouth quirked. Parlor tricks? No one else brews it this good, I sipped. Someone is rubbing out the brothers. Like I haven't heard, so, he said. I almost spewed Sumatran dark roast with a pinch of cane sugar and cream. That doesn't bother you? I'm out of the game. It isn't my problem. He peered at me a moment. How did you find me? Adam, he told me you eat here every morning before work. With a big target on your chest. You could be next. I'm an avowed atheist now. I'm safe. An avowed... How did you manage the kind of head trauma you'd need to believe that? Anyhow, Trent converted to Buddhism. Lauren changed his name to Seeker After Truth and joined some sect back in Cove. Both are dead. Graham would be too if I hadn't been using his crapper when his apartment blew up. What makes you think whoever is killing us will care that you're trying to swing for a different team? Nathan shrugged. Tim showed up again. Like something? Sure. I held up the menu. The special. Eggs over easy. Whole wheat toast. And throw in some extra bacon. He took the menu, scratched his butt with its left corner, and passed it to a couple of women at a table farther on. Nathan opened his newspaper to the entertainment section, pretending to ignore me. Someone shot Mel ten blocks from here last week, I said. Did you hear about that? Nathan glanced at me over his newspaper. Yes, 
Gay bashers, speaking of swinging for a different team. Gay bashers bash up close and personal, I said. Mel took one bullet through the head, sniper style. The bullet matched the gun that iced Lorne back in Cove. So whoever is killing us has moved here. Nathan flinched. How do you know the bullets match? You're a bookstore clerk. You don't have connections like that. I do now. Where are the others? I don't keep in touch with them. Not my brother's keeper and all that. You don't have to be beer buddies with them. I just want phone numbers. What if they don't want to talk to you? That's up to them. I'll leave messages. I opened my jacket and reached into my shirt pocket for my day planner. My jacket gaped enough that Nathan saw the kimber. His eyes grew. I thumbed my day planner to one of the notes pages in its back and slid it over his newspaper, a blue bick lying next to the spiral in its center. Right. Last known addresses and phone numbers. He started. I looked at the morning traffic drifting along, halting, I assumed, when the lights turned. A breeze had come up. Someone's snack trash pirouetted past the window. An eggshell blue Mustang cruised by, slowing outside the glass. My hand darted into my jacket and closed on the pistol grip. Nathan looked as if his eyes would fall out and roll across the table. I glanced at him and scowled, then watched the car until it rolled out of view. I kept my eyes on the door. Tim slid one plate from his armload onto the table as he wandered past. I tugged Nathan's paper over and drew the pistol out, setting it down with the paper making a tent over it. Who are you expecting? Nathan whispered. He finally had the decency to appear as if his knees were turning to goo. Keep writing, I said. I could see the butt of the kimber under the newspaper. In particular, I saw the black square hole on the bottom of its handle. I'd left the ammunition clips in the trunk of my car. That, I thought, as a chill crawled along my shoulder blades, saved me from learning how to handle a loaded gun. Someone followed me from the airport, I said. And you led them to me? No, I lost them over on the south side. They found you on their own. Leave. I jutted my chin at an old wooden door marked employees only. Go that way. Don't think about it. Just run. I slid my day planner into my shirt pocket, then rammed the gun into the top of my pants. Not something I'd usually recommend, but there was no reason to worry about sending a slug through future Seth Juniors. I can help, Nathan said, gaze darting to the window. By stopping a bullet? His mouth opened and closed and opened and closed. Then he reached for my plate. Yum, extra bacon. Chewing like mad, he took out his wallet and dropped a twenty on the table. Apparently trying for nonchalance, he got to his feet, yawned, stretched, chewed some more, and sidled down the hall past the washrooms. I headed out the front door as the Mustang pulled in across the street, slipped into the alley across from a black dumpster, gasping at the stench of weak-old food. Drawing my useless gun, I glanced around the corner. A sound up the alley spun me around to see Nathan rabbiting away as a door swung shut. Swallowing the chunk of vital organ that had shot into my throat, I peered at the street again. A tall woman in a black skirt cut off above the knees jaywalked toward me, ash-blonde hair shining. 
I had expected someone pulled from the standard goon cast, not a cool, elegant hired gun. I did wonder why the assassin hadn't picked better work shoes. Two-inch heels are lousy victim-chasing attire. The skirt wouldn't help either. I waited, listening to the clip-clop as her heels neared. I have my... Uh bottle of Salt Spring Wild dry cider that, uh, well, it's in a, in a closable bottle. Nice. I don't know what you call that kind of top, but it's a reclose, it's a closable bottle. So like I didn't drink all of this right at this moment. So there's not very much left. It comes in its own handy carrying case. So why dirty a glass? Nice. Because I'm such a keener, at this moment I had to look up Growler just to see if it was referring <laughs> to just the top or if this was the style of bottle. You know, okay. Wikipedia is my friend. Wikipedia has been mm. my friend many, many times. In fact, I think if I looked up my search history, you'd find quite an interesting list. If somebody was watching and seeing that I was looking up how much damage, you know, certain types of torture... <laughs> <laughs> I'm a writer. I've, I've often wondered that myself because I've looked up things like you know making a nuclear bomb and and <laughs> can you actually turn a light bulb into an explosive? And, you know, I'm pretty sure at some point you know the FBI and CSIS has this dossier that's getting thicker and thicker and thicker. I'm a writer. Excuse me. height. Thank you. When we first met, let's see. When did we, we met at the Surrey International Writers Conference and in my second year there I met you and you were the guy with the hat. Yes. And I didn't even remember your name. I met you again. Now, apparently for a couple of years at the Surrey Conference, <laughs> I was just the guy with the hat. <laughs> then I stopped wearing the hat and everybody would be going, I know. Uh, I swear I've seen that face before. And then there was the one year that we went and like none of our other friends were there. And that I think cemented our friendship because we were right. stuck together. <laughs> <laughs> and like there was nobody else to talk to because I mean, there's only like 800 other people at the conference or convention. We spent a lot of time and, and um, got into actually after that, sharing our work with each other and stuff like yeah. that. And then I come and came over and stayed with you and you lived on random road. So we were the random road writers, <laughs> which I still think is a great name for a writer's group. Absolutely. And somewhere between the two, you introduced me to my wife, which was awesome. You're I highly welcome. recommend it. So life worked out rather nicely. And here we are chatting. I'm still very grateful for technology like Skype. I had another buddy who critiqued at least two of my novels for me and he was moving to Ottawa. I was like, well, how are we going to do this? Because you're moving. And he said, oh, there's this great thing called Skype. So, and I- For the record, neither of us own any stock in Skype. Yeah. <laughs> this promotion is entirely free. <laughs> this is not recorded on Skype just though. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember back it is using Zoom, which we highly recommend also. <laughs> back in the day when you could tell Skype, well, it would it would give you notifications, right? And it would 
I would I would tell it to sing and I was telling it to use in the Hall of the Mountain King and because you went by JS Lister when you were sending me a message it would it would say you got a chat message from Schlister (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't do that anymore I think Microsoft took it over and took away all the fun It was when I first met Jonathan at Surrey that we were going around the group asking, what do you write? And he described his project about a guy with Shimmerman's disease. So in fact, I remembered him as the guy with the hat and the guy who wrote about Shimmerman's disease. And that story eventually became Oblivion's Wake, wherein, thanks to this bizarre illness, David Glass has no memory of the first 15 years of his life. Now a new treatment can awaken his lost memories. But sometimes the past should stay buried. Here's Jonathan reading chapter one. Oblivion's Wake by Jonathan Sean Lister. Autumn 2051. Memory is a story the mind tells to itself. Chapter one. David imagined the drug as an insect beneath his skin climbing from the crook of his arm to his shoulder and neck, then catching the stream of the corroded artery that would carry it into his brain. It clung to that arterial wall, fought the flow, drew the journey out from hours to days to never. Two weeks since the syringe bit his skin, and still no flood of images, no spark of recollection. David shut his eyes, opened them upon the stones at his feet, Melanie Reed, Loving Aunt, 1976-2028 to Stuart Reed, Loving Uncle, 1974-2028 to He had hoped this would be his first visit to the graves, where he could actually recall his family. Instead, a familiar hollowness remained in his mind. He knelt and brushed dirt from the base of the twin stones. Then, sighing, He looked up across the grass to where Ariel stood before the stone of her grandmother. Her hands made fists in her jacket pockets, knuckles pressing tiny indentations against the fabric. Seeming to sense his gaze, she turned, forced a smile, and came toward him. With her black hair tied into a bun, she looked like a schoolteacher too long in the jaws of public education. Her coat was identical to his, magenta, with more pockets than one could possibly need, and zipped to her chin against November's chill. Ariel slipped her gloved hand into his. Thank you. David leaned down and kissed her. Her lips tasted of mint. Her brow arched. For what? Being here? Being you? If that's all it takes to keep you amused, I can manage. Going to ask whether anything has come back yet, he said. I'm tired of asking. Ariel snorted and squeezed his arm. I'm starting to think they shipped you a vial of Baltimore tap water. The car crossed from Vancouver into Burnaby beneath a sky-threatening rain, made its way to Watling Street, and eased itself into the driveway. David climbed from the passenger side. Ariel joined him 
pressing herself against him as they strode across the lawn, a mess of maple leaves blown and scattered by storm winds. The car dutifully waited for the garage door to slide up, then roll itself inside. The huge house with its oversized living room and brooding black couches was strangely free of racket. The kids were away for the weekend, thanks to a few words from Ariel to their friend's parents. He had become used to family noises competing for his attention. There were times when he had longed for peace and quiet. Now it left him unsettled. "'Love?' Ariel said, stepping inside. "'Yes?' Ariel cocked her left eyebrow. "'That was a question. Was that your answer?' Always, David grinned back, enjoying the old game. Ariel ran her coat's zipper from throat to waist and tugged it open with a flourish. Now David understood why she had put it on in the bedroom, to keep him from seeing her choice of garb. Ariel had opted for her burgundy vest with snaps up the front. Over the years, she had grown somewhat thicker around her middle, a change only she and he were likely to notice, and the vest was a size too small now. But vanity or denial hadn't prompted her to wear it. She had clearly chosen it for the spectacular things it did to her breasts. Ariel licked her lips. Don't you know it's rude to stare? She slipped her arms beneath his, breathing spearmint against his cheek. I love you. Love you too. Love you more. Do not. Do. He shut her up with his tongue. The lapses are here. Damn it, damn it, damn it. My mind wanders away from what I'm doing now. Got to get this down. Remember the time auntie and uncle took me to the fair in 26? They had these big fighting bots, the kind that can smash each other into pieces, but all the bits snap together so the next player can do it again. And he kept saying, Oh, that's so mean, Davy. I was beating up this other kid's bot. David studied the page of his journal, neat black strokes in his younger self's handwriting. The wooden chair at the dining table chilled his naked behind. The fair would have been in midsummer, weather for shorts and a t-shirt. He was thirteen. The place likely smelled of fast food. The other kid's name was Frederick. I remember that because he called himself Rick. It was his mom who called him Freddy. God, picture getting stuck with a name like that. Davy is bad enough. The couch creaked as Ariel picked herself up. Been thinking, David said. Uh-oh. Ariel strutted to the table, hips swaying in a comically exaggerated stride, breasts bouncing. The surgical scar between them stood out in pink relief against her skin. Trying to distract me? The teenager I used to be thanks you from the depths of his libido. Are you sure, she said. What if it turns out I'm not his type? Him, hetero teenage boy. You, warm, female, sans clothing. Definitely his type. But not the point. David tapped the books in front of him. I have an idea. I described auntie and uncle in these books. I can imagine how they looked, how the house must have smelled, even Uncle Stu's blustery voice. 
Maybe the memories are so close to what I've imagined that I just haven't noticed they've started coming back. Ariel's gaze skipped away from his. That's an interesting thought. You only say that's interesting when you mean that's crap. Name one case of a patient who got a beta ephemerase dose and didn't have some kind of disorientation, Ariel said. It takes time for the stuff to kick in, sometimes a month or even more. Majority start getting their lives back in less than a week, David said. And one in three start the week after, and one in seven the week after that. So you're special, but not very. Live with it. David slapped the notebook shut. So, consensus. That was a stupid idea. Put it in context. Your magnificently bizarre mind cooked it up while you were rolling me around on the couch. The blood normally feeding your brain cells had better places to be. Ariel eased her arms around his neck. Warmth pressed against his back. Let's go to bed. It's 4.30, he said. Tired already? Don't be silly. David woke to a stench of rotten meat. His stomach clenched and squeezed until he couldn't breathe. He stumbled out of bed and half staggered, half ran to the bathroom. His palm caught the light switch. The glare from the light strip above the mirror stabbed agony through his eyes. His belly heaved. He sank to his knees before the toilet and retched. Nothing came up but bile burning his throat. Ariel's voice roared in his head. Jesus, what's wrong? That smell. Something die under the bed? Ariel stood wide-eyed in the doorway. No smell, David. David rose and leaned against the sink. He twisted the knob for cold water, bent down over the basin to drink directly from the flow. Mouthful of water, he sucked air in through his nostrils. No odor of rotting flesh. David emptied his mouth and drew a long breath. Must have dreamed it. It certainly wasn't coming from me, Ariel said. Smelled like old meat, roadkill, strong and thick, as though it were all around me. David reached for his toothbrush for the second time this night. A smile dimpled Ariel's cheeks. So I guess we're getting our money's worth. What? It started, she said. David worked the brush along his teeth and tongue, killing the acid taste. He spit froth into the basin. Maybe. Didn't write anything about old meat in my books. You had five months to write down fifteen years of your life. Odds are good you left out a few details. Remember anything specific? Maybe. Coherent sentences, Mr. Glass, Ariel said. The images in his thoughts broke apart, but one remained, like a still-frame photograph. Ridiculous. What is? she said. You and Auntie Mel, her with her hands on your neck, choking you. Ariel's brow shot up. Not what I expected, considering. David nodded. Not only was it creepy as hell, it was impossible. The fire had burned his aunt and uncle to ashes four years before he found this woman standing frightened and alone before her grandmother's grave. 
that's just a little taste of this suspenseful and creepy story. Now we're going to go on and talk about Jonathan's newest project for which he has used an interesting process. I want to hear about your other, I don't know how you manage to keep so many projects on the go. I mean, I guess, I guess I do too. I'm working on three books at once. If you consider podcasting book one and editing book two and still trying to write book three. Um, <laughs> but that's not, I mean, you're actually, you've got your Armageddon boys. Is that what, is it, are you still, are you still calling it Armageddon yeah, boys? That's, they're, that's the series. Yeah, okay. So, so Judgment Days, and, Judgment Days and Frog of War and that. And, um, but you're also writing this science fiction trilogy. Well, why don't you, you tell us about your process for that series? Because it's fascinating, this whole palindrome process. process. Yes. (laughs) Uh, What I, what I did with the first book is when I was going to one of the, one of my writers groups retreats in Port Alberni, I wanted to do a complete first draft during that week that we were going to be away. And so I said to myself, I'm going to have to come up with a pretty detailed outline. It doesn't have to be, you know, everything, but I need to know what happens in each of the chapters. So I had an outline that detailed the key events of, of each chapter. But then for the heck of it, I said to myself, okay, rather than just write from the first chapter through to the end, let's have some fun with the process. So I came up with, as, as um, you referred to it, the palindrome method, which is, okay, I had 24 chapters in my outline. I wrote chapter one, and then I wrote chapter 24. <laughs> then I wrote chapter two, and chapter 23, and chapter three, and chapter 22, on until I wrote the middle. I did the two subsequent books the same way, but in order to kind of keep the, the process going that way. I wrote the first book that way. And then I wrote the third book using the same technique. And then the last book I wrote was the middle one. So everything was a palindrome. And the things that stood out to me about it were, I was absolutely clear on how the story was going to end, even when I was just writing chapter two or chapter three. Right. Because literally that same day or possibly just the day before I'd written one or two of those ending chapters and it ended up being, it ended up working out that I needed to do four chapters a day. I wasn't thinking in terms of having a good first draft written in a week. I was thinking in terms of having a complete first draft, very different creatures. That gives you something to build on. But I did find that when I was working on the earlier chapters, I still had a really strong sense of, how the story was going to wrap up, where I was going. And also, there were things that I could build into the story because I could write chapter two and mention something, which then I would be writing chapter 22 or 23, and I could refer to that. And I could, so I could tie elements of the story together from beginning to end which I found really let me tighten the story up. This is kind of the good thing about not having put book one out before I'm working on book three. Like I kind of do the same thing because as I work on book three, I go, oh, well, it would be really, I want to do this thing. It would be really interesting 
if I could drop in a little hint about that in book one. Okay, so I'll go back to book one. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Of course, now that I've podcast book one, I can't really do that anymore. So I have to really just get my shit together and finish the damn book. (laughs) (laughs) To to me, there, there are two really important things. Begin with action so that you're moving in the story right from the beginning. And also, ask yourself what questions the reader is going to be asking. You don't want the reader to be confused. You don't want the question to be, huh? Yeah. (laughs) You want the question to be, oh, why did she do this? Or why, how does she know that? Um, I wrote a story some time ago, um, which is ultimately going to be a novel, where several pages in, a character thinks in passing that about the bullet, ho- the bullet wound in his leg has started to ache because the weather has changed. Guaranteed, the reader is going to keep going just mm-hmm. to find out how the heck he happened to come to be shot. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's the kind of thing that, that I should probably, you know, be careful what I say here because your <laughs> listening audience might be, you know, picking up on all the trade secrets that, that, that we writers share about manipulating them into getting from the first page to the last page without noticing that we've been playing them like violins all the way along. <laughs> when I was doing Oblivion's Wake, I said to myself, start the story and don't think beyond, oh, the next chapter or two. Right. So the story had the room to breathe where I could would say to myself, oh, I know where this chapter is going to end until I would get to the end of the chapter and it would throw something in that completely took the story in a direction that I hadn't seen coming. So at one point, I literally had notes on five possible ways, four or five ways the story could end. I said to Mist, with this trilogy, there's no way I'm giving her the first book to read until I've got the other two because the first one ends on an absolutely horrific cliffhanger. (laughs) And I will not survive (laughs) if she ends up stuck waiting a month or two months or four months or six months for book two. Because she's angry enough at me for having let her read books one and two (laughs) and book three not being ready. So yeah, I'm feeling the pressure. (laughs) (laughs) it's a good kind of pressure there's always this discussion about whether one is an outliner or a you know fly by the seat of your right by the seat of your pants or or whatever and of course when I first started doing this I was so new to the whole writing thing in my first couple years at the Surrey Writers Conference you know you you go to a workshop and you listen to the people who have multiple books published and everything and I I got myself into quite a tizzy of self-doubt because some of the people who are outliners, for instance, are very, very rigid on you have to outline and this is how you do it. And of course, I didn't do it that way. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, what have I done wrong? I must have done something wrong. And so I was just, I, I was so delighted when I first heard of the concept of a pantser, uh, uh, mm-hmm. when, you, when you write by the seat of your pants, because I was like, oh! that's me that's <laughs> oh good there's not something wrong with me and then not only am i a pantser but i'm i'm a 
what is called, I, not that I like all of these terms, I don't like to get stuck on them, but again, to find out that you're not alone in your process is just very yeah. gratifying. I, yeah. I'm a grasshopper writer, which means that I jump around from scene to scene and I have no plan at all. It's not like I'm starting at the beginning and writing the story consecutively and just seeing what's happening. I'm writing the scene that I feel like writing and then I figure out how it fits into the story later. Like book two, Gatekeeper's Deception, which I'm going to start podcasting very, very shortly, coming soon to a Wednesday near you. There were so many scenes that I, I had written and didn't know how they were going to fit. And then I would have to, I would get stuck on a point and I'd have to back away for like three or four days. And then somehow it would come to me. And I still to this day think of the creation of that book as a Tetris game because I had all of these pieces that I was trying to fit in and they were dropping down rapidly and I had to fit them in neatly and I was missing something. And then I would figure out what that piece was and I would stick it in there and all of a sudden, all of these things that I had written with no plan whatsoever, <laughs> all fell into place. And I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> So that book too came together the way it is. Just, it boggles my mind. <laughs> so I've not liked that expression, you know, pantser. Yeah. But I do like the term that I've heard from Brenda Carr I don't know if she came up with it or echoed it from someone else, writing into the dark. Yes, she does. Just doing the next bit of the story and just not thinking in terms of where the story is going, but just thinking in terms of what makes sense for this character to do right now based right on now. what they know. Yeah. And just let them figure it out. Yeah, and they will tell I, you. The characters will tell you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I find if I reach a point where I don't know what should happen next, I go back to the character. Yes. Because I think if I don't know where this is going to go next, I don't know this character well enough. For the uh, non-writers listening, this is the stuff writers think about. <laughs> we, we're kept up late at night. We, we lose sleep. <laughs> stuff like this. <laughs> I mean, there is that, that wonderful point where suddenly you're not just throwing words onto paper, but the character pops up and sits down next to you and possibly steals your mug of tea and says, <laughs> okay, let me tell you how it happened. <laughs> and at that point, you're just like, okay, you know, talk slower. I'm trying to keep up. <laughs> The people I know who outline religiously, that's what, what they say is that the outline is not so set in stone, that it can't evolve and, and sort of be wiggly, you know, and adjust as, yeah. as they go along and discover things. Book three is the closest I've come to it because I'm working so hard to keep track of all of these plot lines I've got going on that I have written the story of book three in sort of paragraph form. And as I come up with an idea, then I'll, I'll, I'll rearrange things. And so 
I mean, you might even say that that's an outline because mm -hmm. I'm going through and making sure I've dealt with key plot points and I've got a color coding system. Green means I have to deal with it, so go. And amber means it's in the process. And then red means dealt with it. Done. Ah! <laughs> Yay. So little celebration every time there's a red one. So yeah it's uh, uh so that's the closest i've ever come to having an outline is what i'm doing right now and that's like i said just just to keep track of all of the things i need to make sure i address there are commonalities there's you know ways that you tend to fall back on as the writer but how much you do of outlining versus pantsing how much you do in terms of notes on the character or notes on scenes is going to vary dramatically and it doesn't even mean that I need to use all of that stuff as long as I understand that because it's going to fuel the story. That brings richness to the world and to the way you tell the story and to the things your characters know and the, the way they behave and the way they think. But just because you've done that work doesn't mean that it all goes into the novel. It, it can't. Exactly. I, I'm careful not to fall into the trap of too many early science fiction writers who they did months of research into this topic and goddamn they're gonna share every one of those months with you <laughs> no how about you just cut out all of the stuff that isn't necessary to the story and we'll just stick with the rest <laughs> yeah that that makes me think of a thing i read recently susan forrest said it it has to do with description should always come in hand in hand with point of view. So I read so, that. I read yeah, that. That so was brilliant. Just allow the character to flow through the world and experience it and do the things they do. And that's how the, the, the reader or the audience experiences the world. And I never got that concept so clearly. And also what your character is going to pick up on that's is right. unique to that character. Yeah, like, like Kier will notice something very different from what Derry notices. I can describe the same situation from both of those characters' points of view, but they're going to see different things, which will bring well, the more richness to the reader's experience. Okay, a, a real-life example is when Matt and I went on our summer holiday to the Gulf Islands, and we did a whole lot of just hanging out at the seashore for hours reading or just walking around and he as we're walking separately we're going in different directions and just he is always looking at the the sea creatures whereas i'm looking at the rock formations ah uh, mist and i are the same way you know we're yeah. driving down the highway and she's commenting about oh look there's this rare plant <laughs> in the ditch back there and i'm saying oh look a tesla model 3 just went by <laughs> Are we in the same car? <laughs> that is real life, that people notice different things. But also, that tells you so much about the character. Without even, as a reader, without necessarily even picking up that, oh, I'm being shaped to see this character in a certain light because of how they view the world. No, you just slip into the character and you're, you're there with them. Yeah. Looking over their shoulder. 
And so, yeah, it's, it serves a dual purpose because you're seeing the world that the character sees, but you're also learning about the character because the way they see the world. And yes, that's that richness that hopefully it's seamless that the reader doesn't even notice it, but that's what it's doing. I just got myself some more wine and I'm now drinking out of my pewter goblet. My mom bought me that because we went into this shop together and I admired it. And she was the kind of person who would recognize that and then go back and buy it for you and then give it to you (laughs) on your birthday. (laughs) And you had no idea that she was even paying attention. Ah, You're so good at that stuff. Jeez. Now you see, that is the kind of detail that, that builds a character. Me, I'm a very different kind of person. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad you came on and 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 uh, shared a chat with me for the use in my podcast, Jonathan. It's to just kind of sit here and shoot the breeze about writing and 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 life and stuff like that is uh, super fun. And um, yeah, this has been awesome. I love the title of the podcast. That is so cool. Well, it just kind of started as I need a, a totally fantastic title. Exactly. There's one. We're like, okay, can't think of anything, so we're just going to stick this in here for now as a placeholder, and then we're like, oh, that works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that so, is cool. So, yeah, so thank you for joining me on Totally Fantastic Title, and I think everybody should check out Oblivion's Wake and Judgment Days. Uh, by Jonathan Sean Lister or J.S. Lister or Jonathan Lister or whatever combination. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can find me under Porsche Lister as I used to say. (laughs) Let's do it again sometime, my friend. Let's do this. Absolutely. (laughs) Next week, I'm going to take you up to Wells, B.C., where we recently went on our holiday. And I'm going to introduce you to our friends Jules and Dirk. And we'll talk about bugs and girl guide badges. We'll enjoy some charcuterie. My husband and daughter and I will get to be guinea pigs while Jules and Dirk create a new cocktail. And we'll try to come up with a name for it. So tune in next week. Don't miss all of the excitement. Huge thank you to Jonathan Lister for joining me today. Thanks to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. And thanks to you. Now go be fantastic.